Good evening. Uh, thank you for all being here tonight at the Catholic Information Center. My name is Tom Shakely. Uh, I work with Bobby Schindler. I'm executive director at the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. And uh, we're here for, obviously, the responsibility to care conversation um, with three distinguished guests. Father Thomas Petrie, uh, who is a vice uh, president and academic dean at the Dominican House of Studies here in Washington. Uh, Bobby Schindler in the middle, who is the president of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network and an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute here in Washington. And finally, Wesley J. Smith, who is a senior fellow for the Center for Human Exceptionalism uh, at the Discovery Institute uh, based in Seattle. And so uh, the, the conversation tonight will be broadly about what victims of euthanasia can teach us and going into the nuts and bolts of the euthanasia culture we face and then practical responses uh, in our cultural moment. So thanks very much, and I'll let you kick it off. Okay, I think I'm first. And so we have about 10 minutes uh, to give a little introductory statement. Good, thank you, Tom. First, I want to thank Tom and the uh, Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network for inviting me and the Catholic Information Center for um, hosting us this evening. I think this will be a wonderful conversation. I'm looking forward to having it. I just want to begin by offering a couple of parameters on the church's teaching with regard to euthanasia and end-of-life decisions, very simply and very easily, I hope. Now, with everything, there's always um, footnotes to these things. When it comes to end-of-life decisions, there are principles by, that govern how we should care for those who are at the end of life. In order to prevent ourselves from stepping over the line to actively or even passively uh, killing a person simply for the sake of alleviating their suffering or for the sake of getting them out of the picture for whatever reason, all right? Now, what, what is the basic principle? The basic principle, is, there are two. First, you can never be a clinician, a nurse, a doctor, a family member, can never themselves be the causal agents of death by what we do or what we omit, which is to say, we cannot starve patients to death because that's what would cause the death. Okay, that is the classic definition of euthanasia. In 1980, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith at the Holy See, the Vatican, issued a rather short but still very relevant declaration on euthanasia, which defined euthanasia as an action or an omission which of itself or by intention causes death in order that suffering may be in this way alleviated, eliminated. The church also sort of speaks about, as do many ethicists, what we might call proportionate or disproportionate. The other term you might often hear is ordinary or extraordinary means of care or treatment. It's important to note that what we mean as Catholics and as ethicists and Catholic moral theologians is not what most clinicians mean. When you talk to a clinician about extraordinary treatment, they tend to think of experimental treatments, treatments that are expensive. That's not what we think, okay? We believe that when a treatment crosses a certain line, it can move from being ordinary, proportionate, and therefore obligatory into extraordinary or disproportionate. Now, how do you know when it crosses the line? When you read the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith statement in 1980, it's also repeated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and then it's also repeated in the Ethical and Religious Directives of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops for Catholic Hospitals, there's a, a balance between, on the one hand, the burdensomeness of the treatment, the risk of the treatment, the cost of the treatment, things like that, 
That's on one side of the balance. The other side of the balance is the good that it would do for the patient, right? So it, you can see then how this is not um, always a black or white issue, right? Some people say to me, the, the, a ventilator, for instance, is always extraordinary means. Not necessarily, right? A high school captain of the football team who was in a car accident may have to be on the ventilator for a little while before he is able to be, have surgery or is able to recuperate, right? That is clearly not extraordinary or disproportionate. Quite different is the case of perhaps an 85-year-old man who is suffering from lung cancer who is at the very end stages of that pathology, that disease. It might be extraordinary at that point. Does that make sense? So it's important to understand, sometimes when I teach these things to priests and seminarians, that there's not necessarily a um, set list of what is ordinary and extraordinary. I think sometimes people have that, that mentality. Here's the problem. Food and hydration, nutrition and hydration, are in principle, and this was stated by St. John Paul II in 2004, in fact, and we believe in many ways, in response to what happened with Bobby's sister Terry. All right, so Rome is not oblivious to the things that go, nobody was oblivious to the situation with Terry, God rest her soul. All right, so that St. John Paul II said that food and hydration are in principle the minimal amount of care, especially when someone is approaching death, always and everywhere. So food and hydration are, is not medical treatment, it's care. Now even then, however, we must say that the church is not, uh, in her teaching on end-of-life issues and treatments and care, not overly zealous or absolutist. The 1980 declaration from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith asserted this, so that it's not always necessary to pursue every single avenue, especially if the patient, those responsible for the patient, if the patient can't make his or her own decision, is unable to, um, has discerned in good conscience that that balance I spoke about is now weighed towards extraordinary. That can even happen, for instance, the other thing I often hear from people now, um, well, when I get old or something happens to me, do not put a feeding tube in because the church says you can't take a feeding tube out. The church does not say that. Generally, a feeding tube, hydration, nutrition, is going to be care and ordinary. But as one approaches death, the body itself may be increasingly unable to assimilate or process food and water right? At that case, it probably does, even that. And we're talking just days before death, right? If any of you have ever had some, an elderly relative in a nursing home who has stopped eating, you know, as they approach death, it's the same sort of thing that happens. Now, what's the problem? And what do we see in a lot of these cases? I think of Alfie Evans in particular. These decisions, and the church leaves these decisions recognizing that when you get down to brass tacks, to these very difficult situations, there can be a lot of doubt about where, where the patient is, where I might be or my loved one might be, on, this, on that balance between the burden of the treatment, the cost of the treatment, the risk of the treatment, and how much good it's actually going to do, all right, reasonably. That's very difficult to know for some, in some situations. And that's on quite a part from pressure you might be receiving from families. And I hope we'll talk a little bit more clinicians, and we can talk more about that, I think, during the conversation about the pressure of our culture that tends to see those who are disabled 
as burdens, right? That's part of the huge problem here. But what happens in Alfie Evans' case is that you have parents unable to make the decision for their children, for their child. And when you read the, the reasoning of the court's decisions, they're, they're not looking at the burden of the treatment. They're looking at the burden of Alfie's life, right? It would be too burdensome for him to live this way. And that is absolutely insidious, absolutely insidious, all right? To say that anyone, that any life, we are, we are not permitted to say that any life is burdensome. We can all admit that living with certain conditions can be difficult and, and we can have a struggle with, but we're not permitted to say we sh this person should die because their life is too burdensome. You can say the treatment we believe is going to be too burdensome relative to what good it might produce. That's what you see the difference versus saying the life is burdensome. And what we have now is a situation in the developed world especially in which because of technology, because of advancements, because of our sense of what freedom and independence is, which is to say freedom to do what I want when I want. Brittany Maynard is a good, another good example. Um, the Episcopalian Bishop Jean Robinson called her choice for assisted suicide a courageous choice because she was no longer able to rock climb and no longer able to play sports, and this would be a burden for her, right? This is insidious. insidious. This is the work of Satan, right? And I actually told him that when I was on a radio show with him, you know. Um, he, he wasn't happy, but you got to call a spade a spade. This is an insidious thing, and that a man of the cloth would say that. So I think that's what th these cases are showing us, is it's revealing that we have now a systemic problem in which people are looking at life itself as burdensome. And some people's lives are more burdensome than others, and then taking steps to push that away. It's what uh, John, Paul, John Paul II called it out in Evangelium Vitae, and I think Pope Francis is increasingly calling it out. It's what he calls the throwaway culture. Such people should be thrown away, essentially. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Father. Uh, I, I also want to thank Father and, and Wesley uh, uh, for being here uh, this evening to uh, be part of this uh, discussion, and CIC and Rosemary for all the work she did to, uh, to organize this event. And I want to thank all of you for taking your time to be here uh, this evening uh, as well. Uh, I, I, I want to touch on what Father uh, began to explain. Um, you know, I'd love, I'd love to sit up here and talk about my sister's case uh, to, to you tonight because even today so much misinformation exists about her condition, about the case. No, uh, the lies. <laughs> the lies. lies. Uh, uh, and when, when I do speak, uh, we, we do quite a, quite a few speaking events over the course of a year. Uh, I do spend part of the evening to, to kind of to let people know much of the lies that, still, that, are, that, are, still, that are still being told today by in large part by the, the media. But I, I rather, I'm not going to speak about my sister's case so much tonight, and I'd be, I would love to take questions uh, afterwards. If, if you do have any questions about my sister's case, I'd be happy to answer them for you. But in response to her death, our family formed the uh, Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network, um, and the, really the, the primary, the objective of, of, our, of our nonprofit was to try and help families uh, to prevent what we went through with Terry to help them, to stop them are not having to go through with, with their loved one to go through the same, the same type of uh, situation. And we also do our best to uh, try to educate the public on this issue and, and raise the awareness 
on, on a very, very misunderstood and, and confused issue among, among the general public uh, today. So we, we've been doing this now for 13 years, and I often get to, uh, I'm often asked the question, are things getting worse? Well, I mean, our family been, was through a very, a, very, uh, um, a very traumatic ordeal with my sister's case and having to watch her starve and dehydrate to death for almost two weeks. And since then, uh, we really didn't know what to expect when we started the foundation and we started taking calls. So over the past 13 years now, if, if it's any indication by the calls that we're receiving, or if you ever read much of what Wesley writes, uh, sometimes a few times a week, and you can talk more about that, I, I think it, it's, it's an answer that, that, unfortunately, yes. I mean, I think things are getting, are getting worse with our healthcare system, how we view those with disabilities, the elderly, so many of the, the vulnerable people in our midst today. And, I mean, two perfect examples of that, obviously, are, are is what Father just mentioned, the Alfie Evan case and the, and the Charlie Guard case, where parents were essentially stripped from their rights of making decisions for their, their children. I, we, we, our foundation, we were, very, we were very closely involved with the Charlie Guard case. I actually flew over and was, was advocating with the family and met them, and it was tragic. And it was, it was interesting. It seemed to me that whenever you got into discussion, whether it was the media or with uh, you know, others about the case, they always tried to distract you from what was actually happening uh, with, with what-ifs and hypotheticals. And, and you always had to try to bring them back and say, look, what, what's the core issue here? And that's the parents are being denied the right to make treatment decisions for their, for their kids. And, uh, and we saw it with the Alfie Evans case, and they both ended up tragically where the, the, the babies and the, the child died. But, you know, when I look at that case, it, 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 the, the good family, the good that came from it, uh, I suppose, is that I think people saw what could happen in, in, in those situations and where the parents were stripped of their rights and, and they, were, they couldn't make sense out of it. I mean, and these are two cases where there was facilities that were willing and wanting to, to treat the baby and the babies and, and they, were, they were saying with open arms, bring them here, we'll, we'll take care of them. But yet the hospital was saying no. Uh, two, di two different hospitals treating these kids. And, and I think people not just uh, in, in, in the England, where, where this was taking place in England, Liverpool and, and London, but when it started to get out in the social media and start making publicity, worldwide, I think people saw it, and, and that's why you saw the outrage, is nobody could understand how this could be happening, and, which is a good thing in a sense because it is happening, and it's happening right here in the United States. And, and I just hope, well, we, we've done a lot of interviews on, on these two situations, and I'm trying to tell people, look, yes, that's happening overseas, and it's tragic, and we should be supporting them and doing what we can to, to help the family, but we have to understand these types of things are happening every day in, in this country. And I know Wesley writes a lot about it. And he's been writing about it for years. It's called futile care. And it's just what his father is saying. Where hospitals now are in a position of making uh, determinations based on someone's quality of life, not that the, and they declare someone futile, and not that the treatment is not working, but the, the person themselves become futile. And therefore, they, they can now, they are empowered to make decisions regardless of what the express wishes might be of the patient or those that are advocating for him. And this should scare every single one of us, that the, the physicians in these hospitals now and these ethics committees um, are in these positions now that can make decisions, medical decisions in place of family members. So we need to understand that, yes, as tragic as those cases were, but we need to understand that these types of things are happening right in our, in our own health care system. We have our own problems we have to deal with. And, and I don't want to – I always try to say this when I speak. Uh, we have some wonderful doctors and nurses, obviously, that, that – um, that work at, at wonderful facilities across the country. But it seems to me that we're seeing more and more doctors that are 
that are uh, that have this type of mindset, uh, and they're basing life and death decisions on somebody's quality of life, and they're in a position now to be able to do that. There's, there's so much on this issue we could talk about tonight. We could be here literally for hours and hours, and we still couldn't get through so many things, so many of the problems that, that we're, up, we're facing uh, today that we weren't facing not that long ago. I mean, how long ago, you know, 20 years ago, maybe even sooner, uh, the thought of starving and dehydrating uh, a, a woman with a, a, disab a disability, cognitive disability, would have thought of as, as barbaric, outrageous. But look, look where we've come. We're, we're now we're doing it every single day to the elderly, to, to people like my sister. So you talk about the slippery slope, and are things getting worse? And unfortunately, I, I would say that they are. And we all need to start doing, I, I, I guess, uh, start understanding that and working together to find out ways that we can, we can work against it and, and, pre and, and do more to protect those that truly are vulnerable. Um, so with that, uh, I'll pass it to, uh, I guess, the, the last thing I, I meant to, is, maybe I could talk about my questions, but there's, there's also the uh, uh, one way that we can help prevent, protect ourselves is by having heroic advocates just like we saw with Alfie's parents, with Charlie Gard's parents, we need to, to uh, assign through durable power of attorney people that are going to speak for us if we ever do become incapacitated. But we can talk more about that if somebody has a question. But that's really the one way today that we can help uh, protect ourselves from these types of uh, um, things that are happening in our healthcare system today. So, Wesley. Thank you, Bobby. <clears throat> Thank you all for coming. Thanks to the uh, Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. I was really honored about six months ago to be uh, named to the Board of Directors. Uh, and to assist with their great work. Father, very good to meet you. Uh, I'm a lawyer, and I've been told I have 10 minutes. <laughs> it takes me that long to clear my throat. <laughs> so let, let me get right to it. What has happened in our society since I began fighting against assisted suicide and euthanasia? My first piece actually came out on June 28, 1993, 25 years ago, not quite 25. Uh, at that time, uh, I was writing books with Ralph Nader, who some of you know is uh, local, uh, and uh, we were doing a lot of work together. And I had a friend who committed suicide under the influence of the Hemlock Society, and I was so appalled uh, at what I saw in these Hemlock quarterlies, uh, which dealt with uh, teaching her how to kill herself and giving her moral permission to do it, proselytizing stories about how good suicide was. I remember one, and she underscored it all in yellow, these, these, uh, this information. One of the uh, stories said, my, I even remember to this day, I was so floored by it, my uh, loved one laughed and giggled and seemed to relish the experience. The, uh, the, the story of a, of a good suicide in the Hemlock Quarterly was, my, laughed one, my loved one laughed and giggled and seemed to relish the experience. I was so stunned and shocked at what I saw that I wrote, a piece, being a writer, you sometimes have an outlet, and I wrote a piece for Newsweek magazine called The Whispers of Strangers, and it's available online for anybody who wishes to read it. Just uh, Google or Bing, Wesley J. Smith, comma, Whispers of Strangers, it'll come up. <clears throat> and at that time, I thought what I wrote was completely uncontroversial, uh, warning that this could lead to things such as organ harvesting as a plum to society was the way I put it in that article. Then the hate mail came rolling in from all directions. And, and this was a time that when you wanted to tell somebody that he should get cancer and die, <laughs> you had to actually take something called a piece of paper and put uh, something like a pen, and you made these squiggles on a, on a paper, these signs, these symbols. Uh, and uh, you actually paid for the 
hatred because you took something called a stamp <laughs> and you put it on an envelope. And uh, I received about 150 letters, almost all of which were really uh, angry that I would dare to say that it was wrong for the Hemlock Society to teach my friend Frances how to kill herself and give her moral permission to do it. That led over a time, I don't have time to get into all the details, but eventually uh, I decided to work against this death agenda full time. Uh, and when I started this work, there were, the only place where assisted suicide was legal was Switzerland, uh, and nobody knew it because it was a sleepy law that was not ever passed as the right to die kind of situation. Uh, in 1994, Oregon, uh, after I got involved, maybe that's why, uh, passed, <laughs> passed the assisted suicide law, Measure 16. Uh, and since then, the media has been saying, and so that's, that's 24 years, that this is an inevitable, unstoppable agenda. And yet, for 24 years, we've stopped it. We've kept it from being inevitable. And uh, we have, uh, despite the fact that George Soros and others put tens of millions of dollars each year into the agenda, uh, we have actually, for the most part, been able to prevent. There have been hundreds of, of attempted legalizations that have failed. You just never hear about them. Uh, right now, the state of the world is this. Assisted suicide for the terminally ill, that is a doctor writing a lethal prescription, legal in California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Vermont, and Hawaii, and right here in Washington, D.C., where people, I would point out, can't always get adequate medical care, and yet this city council decided they were going to legalize assisted suicide because facts did not matter. What was best for the African-American community in this city did not matter. What mattered was what well-off, upper, middle-class people who pushed this agenda wanted. That's what mattered, and this city should be ashamed of itself. Civil rights activists complain continually how hard it is for people who are poor and people of color to get proper care, and yet they legalized assisted suicide. Uh, in, in Switzerland, I've already mentioned, it's also legal in Germany by a court order as long as there is not a, a venal uh, reason or a commercial reason, whatever that means. And uh, it was recently passed in the uh, state of Victoria, Australia. Active lethal injection euthanasia is legal in Netherlands, Belgium, Canada, Luxembourg, Colombia, which I don't know if it started it yet. Uh, and uh, the, hair, the, uh, the stories from those countries is why my hair is this color. Um, Brittany Maynard uh, really set the uh, media on fire, and I would point out that she gave two reasons for having assisted suicide. She moved from California to Oregon to do it. Uh, the euthanasia movement had been looking for the right face since I got into this, and they found it in Brittany Maynard, a young, beautiful woman uh, with a tragic condition, brain cancer, and how many times have we seen her beautiful, smiling face with that puppy? Because every time there's an assisted suicide discussion, that becomes the face of assisted suicide. But Brittany Maynard wrote that she did it for two reasons. One was she was afraid of suffering, which we can all understand and empathize with. It's very difficult. Brain cancer, in particular, can be terribly frightening. Yet she never tried hospice. She never tried palliative care. Somebody apparently whispered in her ear the worst possible case scenario for her because that's what she wrote, I could end up with this particular situation. And when Ira Bayak, Dr. Ira Bayak, one of the great palliative care doctors, went on Good Morning America and said, listen, it doesn't have to be horrible. Here's the things we can do. Brittany Maynard and Compassion and Choices yelled and, and howled at him for daring to say that perhaps uh, 
Brittany Maynard would not have to die a horrible death. The second reason Brittany Maynard did it, she said, was to prevent her family from seeing her go through suffering and seeing her go through decline. In other words, she put herself out of her family's misery. And this is a very, very worrying concern because as we are moving along again and again and again, we are seeing people saying who make the news, I'm doing this for my family. And this is a, creating a normalization, a, norma, a normalization of people getting out of their family's way. And when a, when a family member says, well, it's your choice, Grandma, what that family member is doing unintentionally is validating Grandma's mm -hmm. worst fears. Her fear that she is not loved anymore. Her fear that she is a burden. Her fear that she will be allowed to die in agony, which can be prevented and is being prevented right now across this country with good hospice care. And yet, if one says, well, no, Grandma, I can't do this, that person will be accused of imposing religion on Grandma or, or judging Grandma and, and, and may lose their family relationship. You all in this room could face what I call social martyrdom, where somebody in California, Sister Sue calls and says, Grandma's got cancer. You know she's got six months to live. She's decided to do it Tuesday. We want you to fly out, and we want you to be here for the going away parties, which are now being held ubiquitously, and we want you to hold her hand as she dies. What do you do? It's not easy. If you go, you're, you're complicit, if you're a Catholic in particular. You're complicit in that suicide. You're validating grandma's suicide. You're, you're as I just mentioned, uh, confirming her worst fears. If you don't go, you can lose your family. It's not easy. And I don't think the priests are ready for this discussion. I don't think pastors are ready for this discussion or social workers. Because 20% of the people in this country live in places where it's legal. And, and it is being normalized and celebrated. Father talked about um, Pope Francis talking about uh, throwaway people. It's even worse than that. People are being convinced to throw themselves away. Throw themselves away. And that they're doing right by themselves and their families and the cost of health care, don't forget. Very insidious stuff. I'm going to finish real quickly with a story, and then we can have our discussion. I've been a hospice volunteer. My first patient, my very first patient, was named Ernie. And uh, I went to Ernie's house. <clears throat> he was a wonderful old gentleman in his 90s, suffering from heart failure and congestive heart failure. wasn't expected to live very long. And I was brought into his bedroom by his son, who had come to live with Ernie, and his uh, daughter-in-law, the son's new wife. And everything we chatted and everything was fine. As soon as the door was closed, Ernie fell in my arms crying. I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. I said, Ernie, why do you want to die? I'm a burden. I'm a burden. I'm a burden. He wanted to die because he thought he was burdening his son. I said, Ernie, you're not a burden. Your son's here. He loves you. I want to die. I want to die. He was inconsolable. Luckily for Ernie at that point, assisted suicide was not legal in California. That's where this occurred. It would be today. I came to see Ernie over a couple of months, actually, once a week, spent four hours with him. And I was there on different days of the week every time. And I noticed something about love, because Ernie must have been a very loving man. He owned a, a fish restaurant attached to his house. And every time I was over there, people were knocking on the door, bringing cookies, bringing casseroles, that whole kind of thing. And uh, I noticed that uh, after about a month or so, Ernie's countenance lifted. He was getting so much attention and so much love and so much care that I didn't hear anymore, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. 
And there was one fellow in particular, his name was, I don't remember, but I'm going to call him Joe. And Joe was an elderly man, not as old as Ernie, but, you know, about as old as I am now. <laughs> elderly, no, young. <laughs> uh, and he would come in, and he must have been really a good friend of Ernie's, because every time I would come, Joe would be there. So he must have been coming ev almost every day of the week. And I would always leave the two gentlemen alone in the living room, and I'd go off to a side room. Uh, and Joe had a very booming voice, and I'd always hear, Ernie, you gotta fight, you gotta fight, you gotta fight, Ernie. Well, eventually I lost Ernie. He didn't die, he got better, and he got thrown out of hospice. <laughs> and the last day I was with Ernie, he was an Italian gentleman. He played me a mandolin solo. And he said to me, Wesley, you know my friend Joe? I said, yeah, I know Joe, Ernie. You stay away from Joe, Wesley. I said, why? He's an undertaker. <laughs> if Ernie had had the ability to take the pills, assuming he believed in that, I don't know, we never talked about it, he would have done it. Let me tell you, he would have done it. He was in a state of existential collapse, and he never would have known. And there are people who have already died who, had they not killed themselves, I'm sure, would have been happy to be alive because not everybody gets kicked out of hospice, obviously. But many go through that downwards thing and then come back and are still glad to be alive. And we are denying those people the benefit of suicide prevention, and we are cruelly abandoning them. Ernie would not have lived to see the day he got kicked out of hospice, and that would have been on us. So I look forward to our discussion. Um, I think stories are very important because the other side, the people who want to legalize this, are always playing up stories, and we have to tell stories of our own, true stories, accurate stories, stories of love and compassion, true compassion, which means to suffer with. This question goes to Mr. Schindler. I don't mean to make this too long, but can you give us a brief rundown of the story of Terry Schiavo, and is there any prominent lies still being taught by the media, and is there any way you, you can debunk them? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Terry was 26 years old, and she experienced a, uh, a profound brain injury, uh, a, a collapse while she was home alone with her husband at the time, Michael Schiavo. Uh, to this day, we don't know what caused the collapse. Uh, initially, Terry was receiving rehabilitation therapy, and she was actually starting to respond to that by improving. She was starting to form words. Um, and we're very encouraged and hopeful that she would continue this process of improving. Unfortunately, uh, 1992, it was somewhere around there, Michael Schiavo was her guardian. There was no, Terry had no living will or events directive. Sometime, sometime in 1992, there was a shift with Michael's as far as his willingness to care for Terry, and he basically went on pursuit to end her life. Uh, now, there was enormous conflicts of interest that were involved, but, um, I mean, we... we I could be here a long time explaining a lot of the details of Terry's case, but in 1998, he petitioned a court down in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, to remove her food and hydration. Uh, that was the only thing keeping her alive, incidentally. There was nothing, no type of, uh, she didn't need, need any other type of help, so to speak, to, to uh, maintain her life. In fact, I always try to mention, when I talk about <coughs> Terry's case, if she were alive today, she could be here with us. All she needed was a wheelchair. We could transport her anywhere. So she had, she had a severe brain injury, but she, um, but it, you know, it didn't, stop us from wanting her to be part of our family. Uh, Mike, we went, 1998, Michael uh, 
filed a petition to court in, in St. Petersburg. It went to trial in 2000. It was, it was a week-long trial in front of Judge George Greer. Uh, Michael came in and explained why he thought Terry's feeding tube should be removed. Our family fought, uh, gave reasons why we felt as though this was insanity, uh, primarily that we wanted to bring Terry home and, and care for her. We, quite honestly, we didn't think there was a chance that the judge would rule in Michael's favor. We, we thought um, that there was a family that was willing and wanting to care for her. It would have been an easy decision for him to make, but he ruled in Michael's favor. This was in 2000. Our family fought uh, for the better part of five years and did it, everything we could to try and stop it from happening. During that time, it really started to snowball in publicity. And by the fifth year, by the, the, the last few months, it had reached the level of um, not only the Florida legislature and the governor, but Congress, the Vatican. Um, it, it really became a worldwide uh, case. And uh, we were unsuccessful. We, on March 18, 2005, Terry's feeding tube was removed. And then 14 later, approximately 14 days later, um, she died of marked, it was considered marked dehydration. Although her, her autopsy did not put that down as a cause of death. I think they put down that her brain injury was the cause of death, not that she was starving, dehydrated to death. You know, the lies that exist, there, there's so many today. Um, they still refer to Terry as being brain dead. Just recently, there was a New Yorker piece that was about Jahai McMath. They included our Terry in, in the piece, and they said that the videos that my family submitted to the court as evidence were doctored and edited to make it appear as though Terry was responsive, which is just... Um, I mean, it's, it's simply untrue. I mean, these were court, it was court evidence that we submitted. We did not doctor any videos. But, you know, I, I, think, I think underlying in all this with the media in particular is they, they, would, they never wanted to, they could never admit, I think, that we, that Terry was not uh, in the condition that she was being portrayed as, as, as she was, uh, um, if that makes sense. You know, I, I think um, uh, I, I think it they, shouldn't matter even if right. she was. Yeah, and that, that was the whole thing. I mean, I always try to, to, to put that as a caveat. It, it never mattered. I mean, this, this big fight over what Terry could and couldn't do, the fact that she had to prove herself that she was worthy of life, I mean, it never mattered to our family. We just wanted to bring her home as she was. Even if she didn't uh, keep improving to the rehabilitation and therapy, it didn't matter to my family. We loved her, and the only thing to keep her alive was, was food and water. She had difficulties swallowing and needed a feeding tube, and, and that was the extent of it. So uh, I'm, as, you know, I, I could go on and on. There's so much about this case that's really troublesome uh, that, that people simply were, uh, they were just, uh, the truth about Terry's condition in the case, there's just so much about it that, that people simply uh, don't understand. And uh, There's a lie I'd like everyone to understand. The, the lie that's been totally perpetrated is that this was somehow a religious Republican attempt to force religion on a society. The federal, let me ask anybody in the audience, how many Democrats do you think voted against the Terry Schiavo law in the United States Senate? The answer is zero. It got <coughs> unanimous consent. Barack Obama, then senator from Illinois, consented to the federal, uh, 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 federal Terry Schiavo law. So did Hillary Clinton. So did Tom Harkin, who was actually behind the scenes a, a mover and a shaker he, he did a press in, release. in getting yeah. that law through. Yeah. So was Harry Reid, who also was a mover and shaker in getting that law passed. So was uh, <clears throat> every single Democrat senator and Republican senator in the United States Senate back in, it was 05. Yes. <clears throat> so the idea that it was somehow, uh, you know, a religious right conservative Republican agenda is false. 
It's a flat-out lie. In the House of, Demo in the House of uh, Representatives, uh, this all occurred when there was a recess going on, so a lot of um, House members did not vote. But about 40 to 45 percent of the House members who did vote, Democrats, voted uh, yes to the law. So it was the probably, except for the war in Iraq, the most, uh, and the things resulting after 9-11, the most bipartisan law of the George W. Bush presidency. And that, and, and the, the reason why that has now been shifted is that after the mess was over, uh, an autopsy was released, which was mischaracterized in the media, uh, uh, said that uh, half her brain was there, she was blind, etc. cetera. And the, and the media reported it that it was, that she, it proved that she had a persistent vegetative state. That's not what the autopsy report said. The autopsy report said we cannot diagnose in an autopsy what her condition was in life and that her condition was consistent with either a non-conscious condition, I don't like to use the term persistent vegetative state, no human being's a turnip, or minimal consciousness. They acted as if the family had said she was going to get up and tap dance and, uh, and try out for Broadway plays. The family never said that. The family said, as Bobby said, Mary, Terry's mother here, put on the most gallant fight I've ever seen. They said, we love Terry. We don't care what her condition is. We want to take her home. And they were denied that. And that was a tipping point in this country. Because before Terry Schiavo, most people did not know <clears throat> that we took, we dehydrated people, <clears throat> sorry, in uh, uh, cognitive disabling conditions by taking away their feeding tube. After Terry Schiavo, and because of the way it was reported and, and skewed, in my opinion, the majority of the American people supported it. And, and to me, that was a huge tipping point because uh, now everyone is morally accountable for what they believe in this regard. Can I just add one thing about lies? <coughs> uh, and this just be very brief on this that when we talk about the death certificate and the cause of death for Terry, the same thing ha is with Brittany Maynard's death certificate. Her death certificate says that she died from brain cancer. She did not die from brain cancer. She died from the drugs that she took in order to cause her death. That is a factual lie, right? It's, it's contrary to the biology, it's contrary to the science, contrary to the chemistry. So these this sort of calling Calling black red and red black is increasingly something that our culture does. Many of the states that have legalized assisted suicide, Colorado, Washington, for sure, I think D.C., but I'm not positive, we require, yeah. require that doctors lie on, birth, on death certificates. Require that doctors lie on death certificates by saying that the cause of death was the underlying condition when the actual cause of death was an overdose of barbiturates. So... Assisted suicide corrupts everything it touches. Yeah. It corrupts family relationships. It corrupts the practice of medicine. It even corrupts vital statistics. It, one of the, I just want to add the, the other lie, I think, uh, the, a profound lie that exists, uh, and it's ongoing, is the effects of starvation and dehydration. <coughs> uh, I mean, they came out and were explicit in reporting that Terry was going to die a peaceful and painless death. And, and please believe me, it was anything, it was completely contrary to anything that I would describe as peaceful or painless. It was uh, one of the most horrific experiences my family, I, my family ever had to experience, and I can't only, I can't only imagine 
the suffering my sister went through. Um, in fact, I wrote an article about it finally just a few years ago because I got so tired of having to read and listen to the people out there, the, primarily these doctors, that were reporting uh, that these types of deaths are, are a, a, a peaceful way to die. It's, it's just simply not true. But it's, you have to understand, just like we see in so many of these issues and just like we're talking about, these lies need to be told. Otherwise, uh, they, the, they don't want people to know the truth of what's really happening. Uh, perhaps it would make a difference. I, I really don't know today if, if people even uh, understood the effects of dehydration and starvation on a human being. Would it, would it have any type of impact on changing what's happening? Who knows? But uh, please understand anything you read out there that says anything contrary to the immense suffering a person experiences when they're killed this way, it's simply untrue. There's a distinction to be made. It can be peaceful when, as Father was saying, the body is shutting down and can no longer assimilate food and water. At that point, it is medically inappropriate to force food and water on a person, and a person will die peacefully. What Bobby is talking about is having food and water taken away as if somebody locked those doors and we couldn't get out and let us starve to death for two weeks because Terry was not in a situation where she was not assimilating nutrition and hydration. She was. And the other, uh, another lie is that this was just the religious right. The disability rights community rallied to Terry's defense. And disability rights activists tend not to be conservative. I'm speaking generally. Uh, Ralph Nader and I issued, a, at his suggestion, issued a, a joint press release against the dehydration. Jesse Jackson, hardly a Bible thumper, right winger, flew down and stood next to you in Florida. So be, while the, uh, the battle was ongoing, and you had conservatives on the other side, particularly people who were saying, well, this is a states' rights issue and, and so forth. Um, uh, so in those days, it wasn't easy dur during the, uh, what I call the Alamo, which is what that was. Um, you could not distinguish between so easily between what we now have as a, as a political divide that was not as sharp in those days. Wesley, um, I've had a question submitted um, for you. Um, do you believe that the federal civil rights laws, uh, specifically the ADA and Rehab Act, apply to end-of-life care, and if so, how? I don't think they do. I do believe they should. Uh, I don't believe they were, they were included specifically. I think, I suppose, it's possible that a court could uh, interpret the law to protect in that area because it seems to me that's the most crucial area of protection that we can have. But it's my understanding, and I haven't practiced disability rights law, but uh, it's my understanding that the ADA does not apply to that. It is silent about that. Where does an, just a regular person who is facing a family member in the situation, where do they go if priests are not prepared? Father Petrie, are you always available to every <laughs> single person in the world? Uh, um, uh, where do you go for advocacy? Uh, you know, uh, I think about my father and... Um, he, you know, to have that understanding of when the body can't assimilate any longer the food and water, and um, you know, and frankly, most just regular Joes in this country and in the world, they have such a respect for doctors and authority fi as an authority figure. I mean, I no longer do because I actually work with doctors for a nonprofit, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I know what's wrong. Um, however, you know, where where does someone go? I would recommend um, for a lot of this information, and they also have actually, helpline would not be the right term here, 
but they do have a, a, an email address and a telephone number, which I don't have on me, I'm sorry to say. But the National Catholic Bioethics Center uh, publishes a, I think it's a monthly or quarterly publication called Ethics and Medics that's geared towards clinicians and lay people who are interested in these issues. But they also have a cons consultation line that you can call and sort of talk a little bit to somebody, to a bioethicist, uh, often a priest um, who's got a degree in moral theology to talk about these things. It's very difficult, you know, and I, we, we, I mentioned that in my opening remarks, how difficult it can be to have clinicians, and there are, once again, I just want to, I have a lot of doctor friends, there are many wonderful doctors, there's a reason in Washington, D.C., you know, there's many reasons that in Washington, D.C., there has been yet no assisted suicide performed. That's true. Right? Because part of it is doctors are sort of, not only is the law... And so they're putting up a website to try to talk people into doing yeah, it. Yeah, they have to talk to doctors into trying to sign yeah. up, because it, it requires doctors to do, go through a bunch of hoops to be able to prescribe even these medicines. So there can be, and then of course if you have siblings and cousins, you know, when, you know, Wesley was talking about social, becoming social martyrs, I mean, I once had a man who came to see me every week, you know, his mother was in, a, you know, approaching, she was, she was not yet terminally ill, she was not, death wasn't imminent, but she did have advanced cancer, and, you know, my siblings want me to cut off all treatment, I don't know if I can hold up on this. Every week we went and finally he came to me and he said, Father, I killed my mother. Because he, he bowed, he, he crumbled to the pressure. He, and he knew he did, right? So I, I sympathize with that. I say, always give your local priest a chance. Um, and they, if they don't know, they'll, they'll know someone who can. But the National Catholic Bioethics Center, I think, is a good resource. And I was just gonna say, and if you're, if you're in a crisis, I mean, that's what we're there for. Uh, you can call us, uh, we have resources available. What we try to do is denial or withdrawal of care, and we try to remove the threat, basically. And we've been, we've been pretty successful over the years uh, doing that. So if it is a crisis, uh, feel free to call us. We have a uh, toll-free number. There's a danger in these kinds of discussions of uh, making it seem like every time everyone, anyone is dying that there's a crisis. Uh, it, it is not true. Mm -hmm. um, most of the people who work in the, tr in the trenches of health care are moral and ethical. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so most people, the reason these things make news is because it doesn't happen most of the time. Right. Uh, but it is important uh, for uh, you to be prepared to take care of your loved ones or yourself. First off, I think you should sign an advance directive uh, saying, uh, for example, I don't want to be dehydrated to death if I become cognitively disabled. You have the right to say that. <clears throat> Secondly, I think you should talk to your, uh, you should appoint somebody, uh, in California it was called a durable power of attorney for health care. I'm not sure if it's called the same thing back here. Sometimes it's called a proxy. A uh, yeah, proxy. but you should, you should appoint somebody to, to make your decisions uh, if you are unable to. And it only comes into place when you are unable to. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, t and then talk about the values you have with that person. Thirdly, uh, what I did with my mother, my, we brought my mother home uh, for her final illness. She had Alzheimer's disease. And what I, I was doing when, with uh, people who would come over for caregiving uh, to give me respite, or, and uh, even before my mother actually had to move into my home, is I wrote a letter uh, to the caregivers, and I said, this is, the, you know, my mother who was, died at age 99, I said, my mother was not always ill. And I told in this letter my mother's story, that she was born in 1917, that her father died when 
She was five, and my grandmother had to care for a family before there were any social benefits. And how uh, when my grandmother uh, got to the place where it was her time, my mother took my grandmother into uh, her home, our home, and would get into bed with my Italian grandma and sing her Italian nursery rhymes. And how she was the head of the PTA, and how she, and how she when my grandmother was a hairdresser, had supported the family, how when my grandmother's business was collapsing, my mother went to beauty school and saved it. And, and that so personalizes these people. And you show pictures so that they understand, people who are dealing with difficulties all the time, that this is a fully human person with a fully human life. And that can go a long way. And then you talk before you hire a hospice or you know, go to a particular hospice. You talk about your values and make sure they share it. We have time for one more question. Well, actually, it's not so much a question as an offer. I would remind people that there is a Catholic medical school in Washington, D.C. that has the uh, Bioethics Center, the Pellegrino Center. Mm -hmm. And if you want to make a local call instead of trying to, to, to call long distance, I would invite you to, uh, to just make a call. We do take some calls from outside. That isn't our primary job, but we, we get them, and we're happy to answer to them. Yeah. I can guarantee that. And uh, the other thing that ought to follow up on what Wesley Smith said, if you don't fill out an advanced directive in the District of Columbia and you don't pick someone to be your surrogate decision maker, guess what? You've already got one because the uh, council has appointed one for you. <laughs> Under the law, there's a hierarchy of people who will be entitled to make that decision for you, Is much like in Florida. Is the family? Well, it's, it cascades down. Yeah. Depending. If I can just say, if, if you're also interested, not to keep, uh, I want to, not, I, I am not getting paid by the National Catholic Bioethics <laughs> Center, but they do have on their website, and you can buy from them a wonderful, if you're, especially if you're Catholic, a great pre-made advanced directive, you know, and uh, a healthcare proxy designation that goes through all of these things. I want to be, I want my care to follow the principles laid out by this document, that document, and I always want nutrition and hydration as long as they are beneficial to me, <laughs> you know. So. Can I make one real quick comment? There's something also new called a POLST, P-O-L-S-T, Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Sometimes it's called something else. Most MLS yeah, and other things. Um, they're not inherently bad, but they do have a problem. That is, if you've signed one, they continue in effect after you leave an institution. So let's say you, you, uh, you're in an institution um, with a serious condition and you decide you want a do not resuscitate order. That is only supposed to, by the way, to apply if you have a cardiac arrest. So you sign on the pulse that's all signed that you will, you will have a DNR. Well, but you get better and you leave the hospital that pulse goes with you with your medical record. So you may still have a DNR order when that's not what you want any longer. So once you've, once you've gone through a situation, if you sign, and I, I signed one for my mother, and other than the DNR, it was call me, call me, call me, call <laughs> me. I didn't uh, allow any kind of permanent decision to be made. But um, uh, just realize if you do sign a pulse, or MOLST, or whatever it's called. Once, if you're out of that situation and, and you no longer have those desires, make sure that document gets destroyed because it will overcome your advanced directive. Big round of applause, sir.